Welcome back to the Christianese podcast, where we talk about sore subjects that have been brought to light regarding the Christian faith. Then we go deeper with ways we can change some of our flaws in our Christian subculture. I'm your host, J.D. Shin. Let's roll. Hey, everybody. Glad you can join us again. Another exciting episode today. Um, We've been talking about the church and it's being full of broken people. One of the ways it's broken is how we, in our modern era, approach church. As it's been said, we can't change the message, but our methods should change. Today, we're taking another look at how the church is serving the broken world. We have a guest who really took note of the fact, of that fact, in a variety of ways that the church model we use is sorely lacking. We'll hear the story of Dinner Church from its founder. This is a person I look up to greatly, and after today's episode, you'll see why. Verlin Fosner joins us today. Verlin, thanks for coming on Christianese. Well, it's great to be with you, and good to see you again, JD. Always good to see your smiling face. Well, I'm glad it's smiling today. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's start by having you share a little bit about your personal story. How about you jump into some of that? Yeah, you bet. Well, I've been a pastor uh, in Seattle since 1999, but previous to that for, oh my goodness, since the 80s, since the early 80s, 1980, in fact, um, and have had a variety of experiences uh, at reaching the culture, and uh, most of them were uh, relatively ineffective. They got kind of frustrating, to be honest. Um, but my wife and I became the pastor of this church here in Seattle in 1999, and we're still the pastor. Uh, but we just found that uh, though the church grew and did really well for the first few years, there came a period where it just started to go into pretty radical decline. Um, and we were recognizing that uh, we weren't losing people that didn't want to be with us. There was just the natural attrition that was taking them out, moving, you know, people had the audacity to die, stuff like that uh, without uh, permission, you know, Uh, (laughs) but all the same, we, we just found ourselves declining and it dawned on us that we were not able to reach anyone in our city that wanted to go to heaven the way we were going. uh, uh, That wasn't somehow connected to friends and family and things of that nature. So that was when we felt like, okay, Lord, uh, if we keep this up, we're gonna be, we're gonna be gone in a few years. This hundred-year-old church is gonna be gone um, in, you know, in a number of years if we don't make some changes. So we began to pray, we began to think, we met our leaders, we pulled everyone together, pulled the whole church into this conversation, uh, and uh, that was when the Lord really started speaking to our hearts about the historic dinner church or the agape feast sociology of church that was practiced for the first 300 years. Uh, I think our initial feeling was, wow, (laughs) Seattle's a pretty cosmopolitan city, uh, and we're talking about a, a primitive version of church. Are, is that is that really going to work? Are we really up for that? Do we want to do that? And so we wrestled with it, quite frankly, uh, very, very much. Finally, we we did a test, did a test in our own building. We were amazed at how many people were willing to come. 
uh, to that Wednesday night dinner church and listen to Jesus stories centric preaching uh, that would not come to our really cool stuff on Sundays, our best practices, multi services, you know, hymn, hymn services, and then other that were contemporary. And we even had worship leaders with the skinny jeans and the spiked hair and the tattoos and all that stuff, recording artists. We, we were doing the best we could with what we had. Uh, and yet, that, that was stuff that was only working for us, that only benefited seemingly um, the Judeo population that we had already put together. Uh, and so now we found ourselves suddenly with a different sociology of church, one that was done around tables, uh, one that was done based on the Passover. It's actually a new Passover is what they technically are, is the new Passover that Jesus pitched on the very first Holy Week. Um, that the book of Acts immediately picked up on. And um, it was all of that. And But yet we found all kinds of secular people with no history in church for two, uh, as much as a couple of generations in their family lines. Uh, they were now suddenly willing to go to that and yet still weren't wanting to come to our everybody sit in a row and watch really good, you know, Christian presentations coming off of a stage. And so uh, we opened up another one, uh, 80 blocks south of our church camp. Same thing happened. The room just completely filled up and we were stunned. None of these people would have ever come to anything we did on Sundays. Um, and um, so before long, we opened up another one and we've just kept that going. We are now at 17 different dinner church congregations throughout the city. So we obviously changed our identity as a, as a church from a, from a uh, traditional church on one corner to a multi-site dinner church, uh, many congregations through the city. And it's been, it's been quite the ride, especially now that it has opened up and we find ourselves helping a lot of other cities and a lot of other leaders and a lot of other denominations beginning to do the same in their own cities. So we now estimate that a dinner church is opening up around the country at the rate of about one per day. So wow. that that has been our, our more recent uh, wow moment, you're kidding, kind of moment. <laughs> so you you're you're blowing up. I think I remember hearing that you you've even kind of been international. Is that am I hearing that right? Yeah, that's yeah, that's true. We have we have works in Australia, Mexico, Canada, UK, uh, and I one in Portugal. Uh, yeah, it's it's begin to go uh, across the water pretty interestingly. Yeah, the, the the concept of doing something a little bit different. Well, a lot a bit different than what we normally do and and getting something good out of that um the the word that strikes me about what is different about that is um and and maybe this is unfortunate but it's but it's also good is authenticity in in some of the things you were describing about our our what we now conceive as our our traditional church service has very little yeah. draw but this authentic simple um church model is seeming to explode am i catching that right yeah um i i certainly have a lot of respect for anyone that is trying to do anything for the gospel sure uh, and uh so this last 500 years we have brought a sociology of church together it was invented 500 years ago by theology professors, uh, church had never been done this way before. Our what we consider normal church is a Johnny Come Lately uh, approach to church, 
Um, and so it certainly doesn't come out of the Bible anywhere. So it's kind of hard for people today to imagine what do you mean it doesn't come out of the Bible and think about something that's different uh, than what we have done? But what we did was very, very different from what had been going on previous to that. Uh, right. There was some pretty radical shifts that happened in the beginning of the Reformation. So now here we are 500 years later, still doing church exactly the same way. Um, this church began at a time when Europe was completely Christianized. Everyone went to church. So bringing them into a classroom setting, the professors, you know, that started it, uh, brought it, uh, created a sociology of church that they were comfortable with, and it just took off. Um, and uh, but bringing people into that kind of a of an environment, giving them their very first Bible that's coming off the printing presses, and saying, "All right, you're now going to be the priest of your own home because you're no longer going to the the Catholic church. You you that that priest that used to be the shepherd of your soul, that's now you." So uh, church was actually based around a real strong study of the scriptures as almost like an entry-level seminary class. Uh, and we just haven't changed anything all these years, uh, except for what has changed is, uh, you know, the world is not completely Christianized any longer. Um, in fact, uh, at the very best, we have about 20% of the population attending church and a full 80% do not attend church in America. Another 20% used to, so we have, you know, the duns uh, that are 20%, but there's a full 60% of the population that are navigating life without feeling that church or church attendance is a value to be served on a weekly basis. And, and that's a statistic, and you know a ton about this, way more than I do, about the, the decline in the percentages of people that, that used to's. Uh, people right. are leaving the churches in droves and not only leaving the building, the church, but they're leaving the, the faith of the church in, in yeah. relationship with, with Jesus. Well, the decline rate for the last 12 years has been 53,000 a week. So 53,000 people a week in America have a, attended church for the last time. And uh, there's that, that thing where they're driving home and somebody in the car says to somebody else, you know, I, I think I could probably just not go back next week. And they're kind of surprised by the rest in the car saying, yeah, me either, us either. And just like that, come next Sunday, they get up and go hiking and and, and game over for them. Yeah. So that has been going, and that's before the COVID factor, which the COVID sure. factor is just a huge tsunami of uh, destructive force against traditional church attendance patterns and ideas about church. And that's that those those numbers are all being calculated right now. I will say this, that when Melody and I became pastors of this church in Seattle in 1999, there were 425,000 churches across all den denominational lines serving the U.S. population. Um, in uh, 2018, before the pandemic came on us, that number had declined to 350,000. So we had closed 75,000 churches that had not been netted back up with church plants. So the net loss overall, those that have closed and then add back the few that have opened, which is a pitifully small number, church openings and church plants are happening at a very small number for all that we talk about it. It isn't actually happening. 
Um, but that had got down to 350,000. And it was estimated that at these kinds of rates, we would be down to 300,000 by the time we hit 2030. But sadly, um, the numbers have just come out from Hartford Institute of Religious Research, which is my favorite go-to. Um, and uh, they, we are now at 300,000 churches right now in 2022, eight years ahead of schedule. Uh, in other words, just because of the COVID wave, it literally wiped out in uh, you know ten years worth of of declines and positionings that would have been occurring at, in in a two year period. We are suddenly now here, yeah. and all of this has been happening while the U.S. population has gone up from 284 million up to approaching 340 million. So the population is spiking up. The church population is going down. The church to population ratio is is lost almost half of its effectiveness just since the two thousand. So in 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 terms of the that sociological part of things and and how the decline has has continued. I mean, those are staggering numbers. But when we look at this this concept that we you mentioned before about the the authenticity of of real church, where we uh, I hate to use the term real church because, like you said, anybody that's doing something for the gospel is is it's noteworthy. But right. with that decline, do you think that there is an element of now people can seek out more authenticity within uh, how how to relate to not to church? necessarily, um, but more importantly, to the gospel and to Christ himself? Well, I think it's kind of in the eye of the beholder. Um, The traditional church, it's referred to technically as the proclamation church or the proclamation event church. If you go over to Oxford, that's the way they'll talk about it. Um, it, uh, it, it was something that was designed by Judeos for Judeos, and all of us Judeos love it. <laughs> I mean, mostly, uh, except for those that it's kind of been wearing out with. But, uh, but as a general rule that everybody's sitting in a row and be quiet and sit forward while one-way communication is coming off of a platform, we, we've, we've, we've liked that. We've seen Jesus in it. We've benefited from it. But for the secular population that hold a very different worldview, and they have a completely different sociological wiring about them, that to them seems very inauthentic. Uh, it seems that one-way communication, that heavy Bible teaching, somebody telling me what to believe, that, that seems inauthentic to them. Uh, and yet, if we go to a sociology of church that they feel is authentic, then a lot of present-day church people, they will look at that and go, that's not church. What are you talking about? That's, that's I don't know what that is, but it's not church. So it's somewhat in the eye of the beholder there. But uh, to the degree that we are willing to acknowledge that there are different kinds of people, I mean, our neighbors to the left and to the right and across the street from us, they they hold a very different worldview. And when they look at our our uh, church habits, see us backing out of the driveway on a Sunday morning wearing decent clothes, they just wonder while they're sitting there drinking coffee in their jammies and they're looking through the through the window as we drive off, they're wondering why we go back and forth to the same museum every single week. 
because their worldview that is not that does not you know god may or may not be real and there may or may not have been wisdom from on high that's made available here all i've got is just me and my history and i'm I'm just going to go with that i mean that's the secular worldview in a in a nutshell there so there's so we're going we go back and forth to church because we hear god you know even if the even if the sermon isn't perfect or the worship isn't whatever whatever, even if we'd like to do it different, if we were in charge, nonetheless, we always come away with the awareness that us and Jesus had a talk, and I'm in a little bit better shape now because we did, and so we're not going back and forth to mu- to a museum. We're going back and forth to a conversation with the divine, uh, and that's why we do it, and uh, so. Uh, some of that really is a is a sociological issue, but if we're going to acknowledge that sixty uh, percent and growing of the population holds a secular worldview, and we start, and we're willing to do church for them in a way that they need it, even if we don't like it, well, that's that's what missionaryism is all about. That's right there the difference between uh, someone willing to step actively into mission as opposed to still just trying to do church the way they like it and hope that others will like it too and come along. Yeah, there's this, there's this difference between um, the, the, the standard, as you say, Judeo-Christian uh, type of church that, that you go to to be equipped, to, to hear from God and things of that nature. But in terms of an evangelistic um, church model, it, it doesn't have the the draw it doesn't have the and, and not to yeah. not to be all technical or, or we have to do things in a in a weird way or whatever um you you do need to make an effort to to make an evangelistic church that that seems yeah. like that might be an argued point at some points do you what do you well the teaching that? the teaching based assumptions was never designed to uh, be significant in reaching secular peoples. It was just never designed mm-hmm. for it. And so we, we, yeah. we will never be good at it, you know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, in, it's, it's, never, it's never going to really, you'll be able to get prodigals back. You'll be able to get those that used to come, left the church, but man, their life has fallen apart. And you can, those are the ones, when they, when they come back to church, they're gonna come back to the sociology that they were wired for. Uh, and there's a lot of people out there so that are in that condition. So all of our traditional churches, I'm praying for and pulling for all of them because there's a a bunch of the fish, a bunch of fish in the sea that only they can reach, but they are not going to be effective at reaching the uh, the kinds of people that say dinner churches or other contextual innovations of church will be able to reach. Yeah, there let's is. go back to the the dinner church. What does that look like on a on a weekly basis, you you know you've got a Wednesday night and you've got dinner church, and and Raylan and I had the opportunity to come and, and experience that with you guys uh, one yeah. time, and and it was uh, you know I in my mind and you guys on purpose you let us just have our own perspectives prior to going in, and you warned us about a few things, um, but just let us experience it, and what I was expecting was almost prison. <laughs> where where the, here's your tray slop you know you get some <laughs> junk food that uh is is not really nutritious but what we found was this delicious um date night type of a of a dinner with mm-hmm. people that were all across the board you know we had 
uh, Brian, who was who was doing art and then telling a Jesus story, and then yeah. uh, this this beautiful dinner, a great presentation, tablecloths, silverware, not chintzy plastic junk that you know it was it was different. So so anyway, I I start to explain what I was asking you about. What does a dinner church look like? <laughs> Well, Dinner Church is a recovery project. It's not an innovation. So anyone that's going to engage in it uh, needs to realize it comes from a very, very deep and very holy piece of church history. Uh, so it, it just helps us a lot uh, to approach it that way because we're humbling ourselves to something that's very old and and very profound, quite honestly. Uh, and once we do that, there are some doors from heaven that open up and begin to pour down onto the moment and way more healing happens in the room than what we would ever expect. Way more presence of Jesus fills the room than what we would ever expect. Uh, and that's just because a group is approaching it, not as a number of Christians doing a feed and doing good for the, for people, but uh, but it's 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 holier than that. It's it's the new Passover being shared with one and all, and the sacred and the profane sitting together. That Jesus, friend of sinners. I mean, Jesus primarily healed by day and had dinner with sinners by night. He did that for three years. That was the intentional um, strategy that he used to birth the new Passover, to birth this gospel for us, and and birth Christianity. Um, and so to go back and honor all of those pieces and just submit to them is is a necessary first step. Um, but uh, so because of that, we just worked really hard to try to grab a hold of everything we could find in Scripture, even after Scripture. Tertullian was a, a Roman-trained lawyer who submitted to Christ and began to open up those agape feasts through North Africa, and he was a prolific writer. And so that gave us an awful lot of evidence, too. Where did they locate these and who came and what, how did it progress through the evening? You can literally get an understanding for uh, the sorter, if you will, almost. Um, and they were not liturgical. They were very familial. They were organic in nature. Uh, they became liturgical about the time you got to the end of the second and early third century, but they started to take on a little bit more liturgical control because there was an effort to deal with all the heresies that were rising. But but to get back to your question, we worked really hard at just taking what was rather than trying to invent. I love church innovation, but that's just not what a dinner church is. Sure. It's not an innovation. So... Um, People will come in a room and we have a buffet table that's loaded with food, very colorful food, very beautiful food. Um, and, and we use that to actually be a, a sampling of the gospel, a visual metaphor of the gospel. We, we don't have to really tell anybody what the gospel is. We can just point to the table. You know, it's free. There's way more food than the room is ever going to eat. That's by design. Uh, we fully anticipate everyone is going to be absolutely full. However many times they come back to the table, don't care. Uh, we're still going to maximize the room. Very seldom do we run out of food. Once in a while, we'll get a, a huge unexpected crop of people. And But as a general rule, there's more food there than what the group can eat. Um, our worship personnel are already, right at the beginning, they're already uh, singing very worshipful songs. We're not trying to be 
all cool sandwich amazing grace between a, a veiled Credence Clearwater and a Beatles number feeling like we got to relate with the streets. None of that. This is a, this is a church. This is a Jesus happening. So we bring very, uh, very worshipful. I mean, the most worshipful stuff that you would have on a Sunday morning, do an hour and a half of that. Uh, and that's what our worship people are prepared to do every evening. And uh, so they're up there singing their worship uh, about 60% volume. So people can still get their food and sit down at the table and talk about whatever they want to talk about. Not We're not trying to overwhelm the conversation and the ability to have conversations at the table. But we are filling, we are impresencing the room with Jesus through music and through worship. And we most of us understand the power of worship to have the presence of the divine inhabit us as a result of that. And so it's not uncommon to see somebody sit down, they're listening to that music, and then they just push their plate away and just turn their chair around and just listen to the worship leader. Sometimes tears are rolling. I mean, individuals, they're not used to the level of peace that Christian worship brings into a room. They're just not used to it. And uh, so it's really amazing when suddenly it, it's just coming over them like waves. You know, I think one of the hymnists talked about billows, like billows over my soul, rolling over me, you know, the peace of the Lord. And so, um, and that's one of the things we get often is, man, there, I, there is no place of peace in my life with anything else I do or anywhere else I go, like what happens when I come into your room. I get a chance to completely just get some rest in my soul somehow. And that comment, that kind of stuff is said to us over and over, but it's our worship people that bring that about. Um, so about half hour, 45 minutes in is usually when the pastor will stand up. And uh, we also have artists that are painting that part. We did not get out of history. Uh, there was no point at which I saw Tertullian having artists up there uh, painting something from the life of Christ. But that's the that literally is the only ad that we ever did. But we've continued it. It's been very rich and very meaningful for everyone. And um, so in one corner, you know, there's the colorful table. In the other corner, you've got uh, the, the, the music and the worship people that are doing their thing. And then over 10, 12 feet from them are people painting on live canvas, one, maybe two. Uh, that's, we, we thought that was kind of a Seattle thing because we have a lot of artists here. But that is actually translated throughout across the country, even in small towns or people are stepping up saying, man, I, I never thought my art could actually benefit the kingdom somehow, but let me do it. Let me add that. I want to do Great. that. And so it, it's been just an interesting thing. But then the pastor will get up and and if the artist is about done, they'll call them over and interview them. Hey, uh, this is a picture of an apple with a worm coming out of it. What is that all about? Well, actually, I was reading and then they'll always bring something from one of the the 468 Jesus stories. So um, I was reading in Matthew or Mark or Luke, and ha this happened, and I just got this image of my heart was basically a good heart, tasted pretty good, but I had this one part of my life that really needs to go. And I just felt like that was the worm. This is me. That's actually my heart that I've drawn up there and stuff like that. It's very... Yeah. 
soulish it, it really introduces people to the to the soulish reality uh and the work of the gospel actually and so um then the pastor will preach and he preaches a, a charismatic sermon technical term there but it basically means uh a story that jesus told or a story about the life of jesus one of the 468 that we find in the book um and the the apostolic era that uh primarily practiced these new passovers they did Jesus-centric preaching. I mean, the book as we had, that didn't come around for 350 years. So they didn't right. like have a Bible like we right. have. Right. Um, we've been all fascinated about the Bible and I love the Bible, but just trying to go back and do a version of church from a particular era of time, it's kind of good to pick up their version of preaching too. And so this was once again, not an innovation on our part. It was a, an effort to submit ourselves to their ways. And so Jesus stories preaching is really, uh, really different. It's really amazing. Um, as much as we Judeos love Bible teaching, uh, is as much as secular people are intrigued by Jesus stories. Um, and that's something we have a hard time getting in our heads. And one of the reasons that most Christians are so poor at evangelism is that we packed our head full of Bible studies. So when we open our mouth, that's the stuff that comes out. Right. But it's a different language. Their their sociology yeah. isn't even wired to process that. But if if we are filled up with the Jesus stories like the apostles were and on fire about him, and our entire faith had been very affected by one Jesus story after another, after another, after another, when we open up our mouth, that's what would come out. Uh, and that is a language that secular people are very intrigued. Yeah, that when translates. We, uh, that translates. Yeah, sure. translates. We speak Christianese, and 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 that's the term that I I kind of utilize here, where where we speak a totally different language, and that that kind of puts a, a a good nail in it that um, we speak what we've we've sociologically put into ourselves. These mm. studies, these factoids, these yeah. these phrases. Some of them are some of them are based in in truth some of them have nothing to do with anything true but most <laughs> of them don't translate into somebody that doesn't have that sociological input yeah. so for yeah. us to uh to to throw those things out there as if everyone talks like that makes zero sense well we just noticed that if we break out bible study conversation uh they lean back yeah but if if we start telling a Jesus story, they lean in. Mm. Just It's just so cool to watch. It's just such an immediate body language thing because there's something about the life of Jesus that still triggers intrigue, even among the atheists and the most uh, antagonistic people. They sure. still lean in and, and they come back over and over again. And they say, why, when we, when you guys tell those stories about Jesus, how come that thing keeps playing over in my mind all week long? What is the deal with that? What a different and response. They, they, they don't realize that we've not only given them a story, but we've given them Jesus in the story. That's why he, he directed us, I want you to be witnesses of me. And we've, rather than just being a witness of the life of Jesus, which is what the Great Commission actually asked. And so to get back to telling the Jesus stories, we are now just being witnesses of his life. And that was, um, that was the age old insight to how it is we actually talk with people that are very, very different. And of course, in Jesus's day, 
there were a tremendous amount of secular populations. You had the Romans, you had the Greeks, you had the barbarians, you had all the Gentiles. I mean, they were they were more prolific with secular peoples than we are today. Yeah. And uh, so to go back and realize how it was they were able to speak to those secular groups and cause the Christian movement to go from 120 in an upper room to almost 40 million in 300 years uh, by just telling these Jesus stories around Jesus tables. Once we get that little yeah. that little piece understood again and begin to practice it again and watch that even in highly cosmopolitan, highly educated environments like Seattle, it still works. Uh, it's just the big shock. And, and that we have, we have really appreciated a version of Christian content that has been great for us, but it's only good for us. Right. The rest of the people in the town, they need Jesus stories. And yeah. uh, are, we, are we willing to begin to lean into that? Yeah, this is shirking some some Barna research of people's vitriol towards Christians due to hypocrisy or even perceived hypocrisy because we do speak a different language. But you have shared with me last, last time, which has been too long, Raylan and I came up, you guys told us a story about a lady named Rosa and how she, oh, yeah. oh my goodness. And and I yeah. we've, we've got very little time left, but I'm curious if you could kind of uh, divulge that story of how Rosa didn't come through the standard means, <laughs> to put it lightly. Yeah, yeah. Well, I sure wish Melody was here. That's really her story. Um, but uh, yeah, Rosa, um, she uh, was a Cuban lady who in her 20s was a gun runner for, for, for uh, Castro before he came into power. And uh, so her brothers got arrested and thrown into jail. She was about to be arrested. She fled. She ended up in New York City and was horribly victimized there as a young Cuban-speaking girl wandering around, 20-year-old wandering around the streets. And her story of victimization is just awful. Um, but anyway, fast forward a bit. She's 40 years of age, and she decides to go into the occult. And she loves it because she finds family, finally finds a little bit of a of a family even if their uh, their uh, intent was a little dark um, but they um, but they brought her in she started to study she just said wow I'm going to become a high priestess I'm going to become a bride of Satan you know and so she told her neighbor what was going to be happening the next day and her neighbor goes wow have you asked God about that and Rosa had no concept of God she was a full-blown you know uh, Cuban communist Cuban uh, atheist and so uh, she goes, God, what God are you talking about? Well, she went into her apartment and um, she just out of a, she just, it, that question wouldn't go away. So she said, well, God, if you're real, then um, you better show yourself to me and you better tell me that this is a bad idea because tomorrow I'm doing this. And uh, so a little bit later, there was a knock at her door and she opened up the door and uh, here was a man that introduced himself as Jesus and uh, uh, said, I want to come talk to you about what you're what you're doing tomorrow. And uh, you, know, you asked, and I'm here. And she goes, okay. And so Jesus walked in, sat down, um, and he told her, I don't want you to, uh, to go through with this tomorrow. This is not a path that you're going to really be appreciating very shortly just down the road. So she decided, okay, I won't. Uh, the next day, there was a knock at the door, and there he was again. 
can we talk some more? Yeah, come on in. And um, so it was really quite this amazing spiritual journey that was very divine in nature. It went on for eight weeks. Um, then she finally was released to uh, him coming every day. And in fact, she actually showed us one day the cup and the saucer that Jesus drank out of at her house. She kept it all those years. It was just kind of a holy little thing for her. Didn't want, didn't want us to touch it. We wanted to reach out and go, really? You know, uh, that one. And so it's just kind of cool that Jesus drank coffee. I mean, that was cool. But um, anyhow, um, so uh, she went to church and she said, you know, she was telling us this. She said, I, the church, uh, the Jesus of the church is not the same one that was in my house. The, the, the church that the Jesus keeps talking about is just so sanitized and so boxed. Um, and she goes, yeah, that's just not, that's just not the one that was in my house. And that bothers me and bothered me then. And so any, she went on, she developed a great street ministry. Well, now she walks into the door of one of our dinner churches and she just saw the sign for food. She'd moved into the neighborhood. She's 70 years of age and uh, moved to Seattle. And, uh, so she came in and in very short order, she went, oh, this is a church. You guys are a church. This is unbelievable. So instantly she just became a very strong right arm of one of our uh, churches. She spoke Spanish. And so for the Spanish day workers that tended to come in and have dinner, couldn't understand the Jesus story when it was being preached very well, she'd sit there and straighten it all up for him. And, and so she was mama Rose. It was pretty cool. Love it. I and, love uh, that. Yeah. And so then there was that moment where, you know, it was a, it was a dark night and it was raining like crazy. And for whatever reason, every homeless person in the city was needing to get out of the rain. And, and it was, it was jammed from, I mean, we were absolutely jammed and normally we have a few homeless, but it's isolated people at all different levels of the socioeconomic ladder. That's historically going clear back to Jesus. You know, the, that's, that's always what comes to a Jesus table. And so anyway, um, anyway, uh, that night, it was kind of a bit of a smelly night and uh, rain and all that. And Melody was standing in the middle and she said, I was just, I was having a hard time. And, and Rosa came up and said, Hey, Melody, do you smell that? <laughs> and Melody said, yes. And she goes, that's what he smelled like. That's what Jesus smelled like. The one that was in my house, this is what he smelled like. And boy, Melody just had just broke into tears. And, and uh, so it kind of really challenged us to what Jesus are we trying to represent here on earth anyway? Yeah. The Santa one, or maybe one that's able to be a little, a little more raw, a little more capable of being with whosoever will. Authenticity. Yeah. Awesome. What's your message to Christians who are hesitant to go into more of a, a, a a different model of church? Well, um, it really comes down to uh, how willing they are to do church for people that are not like them in a way that those people need rather than in the version that we like. Uh, that is a real separating kind of question that I think a lot of people and a lot of Christians need to ask. And if it's always all about us and it's got to be the way we like it and no one else uh, should get to be with Jesus, you know, uh, that's 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 the real separating question. There's a episode on Seinfeld about uh, 
uh, the Festivus for the rest of us, they always play it at Christmas time. And, yep. um, you know, having Christmas the way that some other people want it differently than typical American tradition, the Festivus for the rest of us. And I always laugh because whenever I think about that, I always think about what about church for everybody else? I mean, we know how to do church for the 20% and maybe the 40% if 20 would come back. But how, when do we do church for the other 60% that are just wired uh, sociologically, very, very different. They need they, they need to be with Jesus too, right? right? But we've got to square up to the sociological issue for that to actually be true. If they're going to experience Jesus the way we experience Jesus in our sit-down Sunday churches, they're going to need a different sociology of church. And the dinner table reaches a significant portion of them. The dinner church, the historic dinner church, reaches a significant portion of the rest of them. The rest of them. The people yeah. that are just like us, but different. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So how can people get in touch with Dinner Church, find out more, um, get involved, things like that? You want to talk about your books? Uh, yeah, you know, I think probably the fastest way, uh, dinnerchurch.com is the website that you can get to the written materials. You can sign up for grad level uh, classes. If you're interested in that, you can get signed up for trainings. You can get online cohorts. There's a, a whole slug and a slew of things that you can uh, become exposed to the dinner church theology and sociology there. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. Good. I will brag on you that you have, what is it two or three now books that you've authored? Uh, I'm just about, I have my fifth one in production right now. Oh, I was way off. Yeah. Fifth one. Yeah. Well, one of them is actually not so much a book. It's a, uh, I asked a question of American Bible society. Have you guys ever written a Bible for secular people? Are all of them just for folks that already have, understand stuff, you know? And and uh, they said, wow, we've never, ever really thought about writing a Bible for secular people. We thought people, you know, we should write it for people who will buy them. <laughs> and so uh, they said, well, what would that look like? So we actually got together and developed a Bible. The translation is the same, but the presentation of the Bible is all about the Jesus stories in, in reading chunks. doesn't have verses in it. doesn't have big, long explanations and, and big breakouts and, uh, you know, chain references. We removed all the stuff that we as believers all like, uh, concordances, none. Of it. It's just literally the stories of Jesus, 468 of them backed up, backed up, backed up, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And we did put Acts in there simply because the reflection of the first first church and how they handled the Jesus stories. Once you once you start looking at it that way, it's it's pretty wonderful to see that first echo. Um, and so, but anyway, so that's the Jesus stories. Uh, Bible. Uh, they changed everything. And we actually hand them out all across the country to anyone that comes to our dinner churches. It's just a really good, a really good tool that is very story centric rather than something written like a lawyer's brief, you know, verse by verse, something that's a little bit more uh, story form. Yeah. But the rest of them are actual books that I've uh, based on research and life experiences and stories and things of that nature. Awesome. Very cool. Well, the final thought for the day, people can see when we're not taking the actions that we're supposed to. The angry people, and maybe even more importantly, the hurting people. But when we demonstrate the love of Jesus by loving people the way Jesus does, the hurting can see that. They can see him 
most importantly, we need to take action on what we've been instructed to do, love and make disciples. Dinner Church is part of seeing that mission from God happen. So thanks for coming on, Berlin. I appreciate it. You bet, JD. All right. Thanks for tuning in to Christianese. I'll talk to you next time. I love you.